Good morning. morning. All right, before we get started, first thing we want to do is welcome Margaret back. Hey, Margaret. Glad you're back with us today. Yes, I know we... We have missed Margaret. She's been a, a faithful member here for, I guess, almost since the very beginning. And we're really glad you're back and feeling better. Okay. And a couple of announcements. If you are not on our email list, and even if you were on our email list but haven't been getting emails recently, I did, you know, uh, evidently something went with my computer and I might have lost some emails. So I had somebody come tell me they hadn't been getting our emails. I sent out to two in the last 24 hours. So if you didn't get one, then come up and be sure and give me your email address so I can be sure you're back on our email list. So if, and if you have never been and you'd like to be, go ahead and uh, bring, bring your email uh, to me, email address. And uh, this uh, next week, we'll be starting a new uh, lesson study guide. And the new lesson study guide is uh, major lessons for minor prophets. And uh, be sure and pick one of those up at your local church um, before next week. All righty, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. And we ask that as we uh, uh, look towards you, that your spirit will join us, our minds will draw together uh, in, in unity and love and truth, and that we will see you today. We also have many members of our class who are struggling with illness of, very, of various kinds. We ask that you will uh, go to them, bring healing in accordance with your will and comfort to their hearts and minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right. We... Um, we are doing lesson number 13 this week, and the last lesson in our uh, study guide, Origins, and the title this week is Creation Again, Creation Again. And if you look at the first paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says the following. One thing that science and the Bible do have in common is the belief that this earth, as we know it now, will not, is not going to last forever. For science, at least some versions of it, the same cold and mindless forces of chance that brought the earth and life on it into existence are the same cold and mindless forces of chance that are going to eventually destroy it. The Bible, too, teaches that this earth is going, isn't going to last forever, but will indeed be destroyed. Now, question. What do you, do you hear any suggestion here implied? If science says that it's the cold and mindless forces of chance that are going to destroy it, they're contrasting that with the Bible. Are they suggesting that the, the Bible is suggesting that it's not a cold, cold, mindless force, it's an intelligent force that destroys it? Yes. I, I was wondering if that was what was being suggested. But maybe not, because if you look down in, in the... Um, Let's see, the third paragraph is it? Yeah, third paragraph. It says, the new creation brings a new beginning. This wretched experiment with sin will be over. The results are in, and they are clear. Sin brings death and suffering, and the law, God's law is the law of life. Now, that's well said, isn't it? That's very well said. I was very happy to see that in there. Have you ever uh, worked with people who actually articulate that very thing. You know what? The law of the Lord is the law of life, and sin brings death. And then they go on to describe how, in spite of that, God is still the one, in order to be just, who must use his power to inflict punishment and destroy, despite saying those very words. Have you ever had that happen? This happened to me repeatedly when I was meeting with certain thought leaders, uh, that they would uh, agree with me when I would talk, describe the law of love as the, the design protocol for life and God is love and sin destroys you would agree with me but then they would always still come back to this idea that God was still the source of the infliction of torture and death in the end so I thought maybe today we could ask the question and explore what does ins- who does inspiration teach is the destroyer 
Okay, that mean some of you said Satan immediately. Any uh, any text or 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 you know references to back that up? Satan's the murder from the beginning. He said John eight forty four. Jesus speaking, um, talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. Yeah, I think it's a great text. I also decided because you know I like to to see where we stand today as an organization and contrast where we stand as an organization from some of the ideas that were being taught when our organization came into being. And so this is from one of the founders of our church, and it says the following. This is in a um, Christ Triumphant, page 239. Satan is the destroyer. The Lord is the restorer. Now this next sentence I stopped halfway through, and I, and I got confused because I didn't read the whole sentence, because it starts out, the Lord has not worked as a physician. I got confused. I stopped right there and go, what? Uh, let's keep reading. The Lord has not worked as a physician in the way he desires to work, because he says, you will not come to me, that I may give you life. Wow, Isn't that good? We look to every source for relief except the one who proclaimed over the rent sepulcher of Joseph, I am the resurrection and the life. Or here's one out of uh, Christ Trampton, page 247. And I want you to pay special attention to this, this short paragraph. Jesus Christ is the restorer. Satan, the apostate, is the destroyer. Here is the conflict between the prince of life and the prince of this world, the power of darkness. The world's redeemer did not design his purchased inheritance should live and die in their sins. What then is the matter? What's the matter? What's the problem? What's going wrong? Oh, get your mind around this, guys. Why are so few reached and saved? It is because so many of those who profess to be Christians are working in the same lines as the great apostate. They let Satan devise and plan for them. He makes them apostates, disloyal to God, rebels against his precepts and laws. Now, I want to pause and contemplate this with you guys. What do you think it would look like to work in the same lines as the great apostate? What might it look like if we let Satan devise and plan our work? Could it look like doing mission work, sending missionaries around the world? Could it look like that? Could it look like building hospitals and schools? If Satan plans and devises our work. Well, what religious organization has the largest church-run healthcare system in the world? What system? The Roman Catholic Church. What religious organization has the second largest church-run healthcare system in the world? Seventh-day Adventist. What religious organization has the largest church-run educational system in the world? The Roman Catholic Church. What church organization has the largest, second largest church-run educational system in the world? The Seventh-day Adventist. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? So what does it look like to work in the same lines as Satan works? Could this be referring to embracing the same ideas about God's law and government that Satan devised in the first place? Could it look like that? That God imposes law and imposes punishments and must be appeased. Remember we read last week, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Every sin must be punished, urged Satan. Could this be referring to Christians accepting penal models of atonement with a wrathful God who must be appeased? 
And think about what happens in the mind, in the mind of the believer, if we accept lies about God's law, that God's law is a is like a Roman imperial law imposed with an imposer of penalties watching over who must inflict penalties. He has a and what kind of things are taught under that model? There is a angel, or not a guardian angel, a recording angel that follows you everywhere to keep track of everything you do wrong. It's worse than one driving down the road and you look in the rear view mirror and you see a police officer behind you. And you turn left and he turns left and you turn right and he turns right. You know how you start feeling? That tension and apprehension starts building. You're not feeling, oh, I've got a guardian police officer behind me to keep me safe. (laughs) This is not how you're feeling, is it? You're starting to feel tense and anxious. Why? Because you believe he's there watching for some transgression of the law so that he can ticket you. And this is what happens when we have God in this role of an imperial emperor imposing laws and penalties. He's got his angel tracking us, tracking us, tracking us. But remember the good news under this model. With that police officer following you, you've got Jesus as a heavenly radar jammer. (laughs) to jam the father's radar so he can't see how bad you really are. Or if you get ticketed, he will step up and pay the penalty for you. Or pay the penalty for you. This is the classic view. The judge finds you guilty, gets off the bench, opens his wallet, and pays pays the bill. What's the problem with that? You're still a speeder. You haven't been changed. You see? And what happens in the character if we believe God is the source of our punishment? Do you open your heart to him? Think about it. Somebody has been breaking, remember we talked the, the natural law, laws of health, laws of life, imposed law, systems of government. If you break both laws, you're doing IV heroin. So you're breaking the laws of the land, you're breaking the laws of health, you're breaking both laws. And you've got endocarditis now, fever, all these things going wrong because you've got an infection in your heart. Do you want to go see the judge? Do you want to be taken into the courtroom? Been break, you've been doing heroin, do you want to go? Who wants to go? If, if you're sick, do you want to go to the doctor? Even if you've been doing wrong, you still want to go to the doctor? Why? What's the difference? The doctor's there to heal you. The doctor's not going to condemn you. He's not going to punish you. And he doesn't simply go, I forgive you. He intervenes to heal. This is God operating over here. Salvation is healing, restoration. Does Satan care if we run schools and hospitals as long as we enslave people into fear-based, self-centered religions that fail to transform the life. Does he really care? I received an email this week from a friend at Loma Linda. You probably know him, Brad Cole. How many know Brad? Yeah, neurologist, and he's got a great website. If you haven't been there, godscharacter.com, filled with all kinds of really good stuff. Anyway, he told me that, uh, that the Adventist Theological Society, which started here in College Dale, is based here in College Dale, is going to be doing a presentation this weekend at Loma Linda on the atonement. And he emailed me a link to their most current online journal, and this is what it says out of that article on the atonement. Many world religions teach that when their gods are angered by the misbehavior, sin, of their followers or worshipers, the gods need to be appeased, usually through sacrifices. In this way, the wrath or anger of the god or gods is turned away from the worshiper, and the god or gods are no longer displeased. This is called propitiation, describing paganism here. Do you see the core, and I think they describe it right. So far, this is correct. Do you see the core of paganism here described? An anger, wrath of a god who must be appeased. Next paragraph. 
But in Christianity, the sinner is doomed to face the wrath of God against sin. God gave Christ, however, as a substitute for the sinner. Because Christ carried our sins on himself at the cross, he faced the wrath of God for all sinners. He became the propitiation for the sins of the world. His death satisfied and appeased a God who hates sin and is radically opposed to it. His holiness and justice demand that atonement be made to change the condemned condition of the sinner who faces the wrath of God. This month, this article... Being, this is what's being taught. Do you hear any substantive difference in the character of the pagan God versus the Christian God being described here? Yes, the Christian God or Satan. Thank you. Thank you, Russell. Did you hear that? He will, give up, he will kill his own son to uh, appease his own wrath. So both of them, let's, let's walk through what Russell's trying to say here. Both of them are angry. Both are wrathful. Both require something to be done to to the God in order for the God not to lash out and destroy. Yet the so-called Christian version of God, who would uh, be willing to vent his ra- is willing to vent his anger and wrath on an innocent, so that the guilty could get off. It's even more disgusting and revolting than the pagan version. Think about this: we have a human king running a human government, and you break the law, and this king is uncompromising. He always in, 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 inflicts the punishment, but in this particular kingdom, there, you can actually go to him and you can present fines, taxes, tariffs, and other things to appease his anger and wrath at your breaking the law and you can have your sins pardoned. But there's another king who also imposes a law and he's unwilling to allow any taxes or fines for your transgression, but he's willing to find an innocent person who's never done any wrong and to vent his anger and wrath on that person and torture and kill that person and then let you claim on your legal account that you've been punished. Which actually is a more horrible version of God. Second one. That's what we're teaching, people. And we wonder why Christ hasn't come. When the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom of love. We are not teaching that gospel. Our, our schools have been infected. Our high schools, our universities. What do you think is the primary theological construct being taught on this campus right over here? This society dominates this theology department. Do you have that link in your notes? It's, in, it's linked in the notes, yes. Uh, yes. And on top of that, even while the unguilty, the, un- the not guilty was punished, if we don't believe that, then we are still going to be burned. That's what they say? That's what they say. Yeah. So I thought a lot about the passage this week. I really meditated a lot and studied a lot on this passage from the ATS. And I noticed one reason this is so appealing to some and so offensive to others. If your focus is on God... His character, how he's being portrayed, whether he's kind and trustworthy or presented in another light, then such portrayals you find offensive. However, if your focus is on yourself, on your fear of punishment, on how you can get off from what you have done wrong, how you can escape from execution, then this penal model appeals. Hey, I can be wicked. I can sin, I can do bad things and place all my sins on Christ and he gets punished for me. Cool, I get off. And I don't have to change. 
Yeah. This is the heart of it. This is the heart of it. It's like a carbon tax. It's like a carbon tax. That's exactly right. The carbon tax, if you all understand what that is, you can pay somebody else and you can keep on putting out carbon emissions. That's exactly right. I saw a hand. Yes. Um, my father-in-law was raised in, in China with some missionaries. And sometimes there would be, their dog would go missing or there would be some problem they would have and they would call the local constable. And they had fresh soup that next day? <laughs> and they would call the constable and he'd come in and he'd say, well, I'll take care of it for you, no problem at all. So he'll just go out of the compound and usually find the first person he can grab and pulls him in. He says, okay, I'm going to punish this guy for you so you guys won't have to worry about it. So, so we got this guy we're going to behead here this evening. And, um, and so they were probably more Christians than, um, than, uh, than ATS, maybe. <laughs> so we consider the two antagonistic motives in this war, God's character of love, selflessness versus Satan's character of fear and selfishness. And it becomes obvious, if you consider those two methodologies and principles, that the penal model is built on fear and selfishness. It's exactly pagan. It's the view of God that Satan has infected our church with. And it's time, time for it to be removed. Here's a couple of quotes from early Adventist pioneers. The first is from Ellen White, and the second is from George Fifield. This is the first one's out of Prophets and Kings, page 124. Remember the, the quote earlier. In fact, I'll, I'll requote it for you in a moment. But here's, here's Prophets and Kings, 124. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their God and to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth. With costly offerings, the priests attempt to appease the anger of their gods. You notice the description of Baal here is that they must appease the anger of Baal. And what was that we heard earlier in the ATS quote? Christ's death satisfied and appeased a God who hates sin. 1897, uh, General Conference, Seventh-day Adventist, Pastor George Fifield, Secretary of the New England General Conference, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, gave a sermon on the subject, and this is a, a little section from it. In Christ Jesus, we are the household of God. We are built upon the foundation and apostles of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. This is as near to the Lord as we can get. This is at-one-ment, atonement, being brought into unity and oneness with him. Uh, this is why he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows that he might do for us by breaking down all those things which separate heart from heart. Notice, he's breaking down things that separate heart from heart, both human and divine. Notwithstanding this, we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53.4 That was, we thought about, about it like this. We said, God is doing all this. God is killing him, punishing him, to satisfy his wrath in order to let us off. That is a pagan conception of sacrifice. The Christian idea of sacrifice is this. Let us note the contrast. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son in order to heal, to save, to restore, not to appease himself, but to deliver us. That is the Christian idea. Yes, sir, indifference keeps, hatred keeps, selfishness keeps, but love and love only sacrifices gives freely, gives itself, 
Gives without counting the cost. Gives because it is love. That is sacrifice, whether it is the sacrifice of bulls or goats, or of him who is the Lamb of God. It is the sacrifice that is revealed throughout the entire Bible. But the pagan idea of sacrifice is just the opposite. It is that some God is always offended, always angry, and his wrath must be propitiated in some way. In an, extra, in an ordinary case, blood of bulls and goats will suffice, but if in an extraordinary case, the blood of some innocent virgin or child must flow. And when the God smells the blood, his wrath is appeased. We talk of pagan immorality, pagan Sunday, pagan idolatry, but it seems to me that the lowest thought is that men have brought this pagan idea of sacrifice right into the Bible and applied it to the sacrifice of the cross. So the Methodist discipline uses these words, Christ died to reconcile the Father to us. That is, to propitiate God so that we could be forgiven, pagan, straight out. Is it just the Methodist, or did we read this out of the Adventist Theological Society just a moment ago? So this is a hundred and some years ago that he said it, and he was focusing there. Uh, but you know what? This is coming to our church. We teach this very thing. Is it with such views of God any wonder that some teach that God is the destroyer? Well, in Thursday's lesson, if you jump to Thursday's lesson, it talks about relationships and about how sin severs our relationships and breaks relationships down. And after sin, man was afraid of God. Adam blamed Eve. Cain killed Abel. People have been fighting each other since. We see that sin breaks our relationships. It also, God has a plan for restoring relationships. And, it, and if you notice, before Christ comes, the Bible has a prophecy. I want you to hear this prophecy because it's going to tie into our, our, our discussion on distorted God concepts, this idea of, of Baal and Baal worship. This is out of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Notice the connection here. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Does this text have anything to say about relationships? What does the message of Elijah have to do with restoring relationships? Is this text connecting? There's a prophet Elijah coming, and relationships are going to be restored. How are they connected? What undermines relationships? Selfishness. Selfishness, certainly. Mistrust, certainly. But what is it in Eden, in heaven, that actually broke love and trust? What broke the relationships to start with? Lies. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Do you believe a lie about your significant other? If you believe a lie, they're, they're, they're faithful in love, but you believe they're cheating? That relationship gets broken, doesn't it? If you believe they're cheating. Even if they're not. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Satan lied about God and lies about God broke our relationship with him. The Elijah message, the message to go to the world before Christ comes, will be a message that turns the hearts of people to each other again. How? Could it be by presenting the truth about God's character and methods of love, which removes fear and restores trust? See, lies believe, break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Yeah. Anybody remember who Baal was? 
4,000 years ago? Everybody remember this? Because it's a lesson for us today. Why do you think he chose Elijah when he had all the other... He could have said, well, before the great and terrible day, I will send Moses before you to bring you a written law. I mean, he had a lot of things to pick. He chose Elijah. What was Elijah confronting back then? Baal worship. Who was Baal? Well, Baal in Hebrew actually means husband and protector. The word B-A-A-L means husband and protector. And the Jewish people actually refer to Yahweh as Baal or the husband and protector. And you can see this in Baal Peor and Baal Paresh and some of the cities they named after Yahweh. Uh, And so this was part of the reason why. It would be similar to us saying God. And God can refer to lots of gods. So God can be used to our God, but it can be used to another God. And so it was very similar. This word can be used to Yahweh, but it can be used to a false Baal as well. But the Baal, who was the Mesopotamian pagan god, was the son of El, E-L. As in Elohim, El Shaddai, the son of El. He was the god of weather, often called the Almighty, the Lord of the earth. Baal was the god who brought rain, thunder, and lightning, who fertilized the earth, controlled the sun, brought the harvest, Baal fought the great serpent Leviathan. He fought against the serpent as well as battled the god of death, Moat. He fought against death. And in his battle with Moat, the god of death, Baal died and rose again to bring life to the earth. Hmm. So what would be wrong with worshiping a god who is the son of El, who is the creator who brings life, who brings fertility, who, who uh, brings the harvest, who fights against the, the serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, fights against him, fights against death, dies in that battle, and rises again. What's wrong with worshiping that God? It's a, it's a lie. It's an it's a, uh, imposter. Yeah, but what makes it imposter and what makes it a lie? I read the quote earlier. That the God has to be appeased. That the God has to be appeased. They brought expensive offerings to appease the anger of their God. All these other attributes are okay, because, in fact, they're true. Christ is the son of El. He is the creator. He brings the, the weather. He brings the harvest. He fights against the serpent. He fought against death. And, in fact, he died in order to destroy death and bring life and immortality. Life arose again to bring life to the earth, has the keys of death and hell. All these things are true. But Christ doesn't, and the Father do not require appeasement. This is the difference. What makes Baal worship Baal worship is that God must be appeased. And when we teach this idea that Christ died to appease his father, this is Baal worship. And by the way, if you want to know the history, Baal became Jupiter to the Romans, god of thunder, Zeus to the Greeks, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to the Christians. Under the system of imposed rules, when Constantine converted, and Christ is that son who appeases his father for us. This is Baal worship. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Truth believed restores trust. Think about this. You believe a lie that your spouse has been cheating, but they haven't. Your spouse loves you and wants to reconcile the relationship with you. What will your spouse need to do to reconcile the relationship if you believe they've been cheating? uh, So who's on trial? Who's on trial in this situation? The guilty or the innocent? The innocent spouse is on trial. That's why it says in Romans chapter 3, God may you win your case when you take it into court. 
God has been lied about. He's given us evidence. So now the evidence comes. You have the truth. Truth believed restores trust. And when and trust is restored, the heart opens for love again. So lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Truth believed restores trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Trust restored results in God pours his love into our hearts. Love flows in the heart again. Uh, fear and selfishness results in acts of sin, destructive behavior. Love and trust results in acts of righteousness. We give of ourselves rather than seeking to protect self when we love and trust. And acts of sin are destructive. Acts of righteousness are healing. Do you see the, the cascade of, of two competing events here? And it all starts with the truth about God. Religion without the truth about God results in what? Flying planes into buildings, burning people at the stake, inquisitions, uh, crusades. And those crusades, what's a modern crusade look like? What's a modern witch hunt look like? Oh, I don't know, maybe uh, professors at a certain university in the West Coast. How about professors at an Adventist university in, in Collegedale? Oh, in a religion department about 1975 to 1980, 85. You remember that? How many were here then? Remember the witch hunt? Some of you don't have long memories and aren't around, but I was referring to some of the internal organizational attacks. About what, that, what, how about most recently, who saw the, the movie, Hell and Mr. Fudge? Hell and Mr. Fudge. About how he was honestly searching out answers to difficult questions about hell and about how his organization attacked him, ostracized him, excluded him. What's a modern-day winch hunt look like? So who is the destroyer? Who is the destroyer? Yeah. Yes. At the risk of money and waters, uh, we can read Exodus 12, uh, where the Lord is talking about when, when the Lord passes through Egypt to strike down the Egyptian firstborn, you will see the blood on the, on the doorpost, and the, you will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses. Uh, and yet, and then we can read in Revelations where the destroyer is described as, uh, you know, the leader of the scorpions with tails and the king of the abyss. So we need, while while we need to confront the, the satanic view of God, we also need to be careful uh, and not ostracize brethren who believe that way. Uh, and lead, and we can understand how they get this concept. I can. I've lived it. <clears throat> We uh, hopefully will we'll try to pull those pieces together as we progress through the, the rest of the lesson. Yeah. Thank you, Russell. Um, I'm hoping to be able to pull that together by the time we finish about God's, because I'm, I'm going to get to God and where the Bible teaches in the quotes that talk about God destroying here in just a moment. Um, there's a quote. Um, what does DD stand for in the abbreviations? Anybody remember? Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that's good. It's probably not it. <laughs> anyway dd page 33 satan works through the elements also to garner his harvest of unprepared souls he has studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature and he uses all his power to control the elements as far as god allows when he was suffered to suffered to afflict job how quickly flocks and herds servants houses children were swept away one trouble succeeding another as in a moment it is god that shields his creatures and hedges them in from the power of the destroyer but the christian world have shown contempt to the law of jehovah 
and the Lord will do just what he has declared he would do. He will withdraw his blessing from the earth, remove his protecting care from those who are rebelling against his law. Darkness before dawn. God does, um, let's see, rebelling against his law and teaching and forcing others to do the same. Satan has control of all whom God does not especially guard. He will favor and prosper some in order to further his own designs, and he will bring trouble upon others and lead men to believe that it is God who is afflicting them. You see the process going on. So why would God withdraw his protecting hands? This is out of Zara of Ages, page 111. I like this quote. It says, Upon, uh, upon coming up out of the water, Jesus bowed in, in prayer on the riverbank. A new and important era was opening before him. He was now upon a wider stage, entering on the conflict of his life. Though he was the prince of peace, his coming must be as the unsheathing of a sword. The kingdom he had come to establish was the opposite of that which the Jews desired. He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. The Savior's glance seems to penetrate heaven as he pours out his soul in prayer. Well, he knows how sin has hardened the hearts of men and how difficult it would be for them to discern his mission and accept the gift of salvation. Do we still have hardened hearts and difficulty discerning his mission? Do we, still, do we still see God and Jesus as destroyer? He pleads to the Father for power to overcome their unbelief, to break the fetters with which Satan has enthralled them, and in their behalf to conquer the destroyer. Interesting, isn't it? So, Satan destroys what? I, I made a list. See if, you, see if you agree with me. Satan destroys truth. Mm-hmm. Satan destroys freedom. Satan destroys goodness. Satan destroys health. Satan destroys life and brings death. And the character of God. Truth. Exactly. The character of God. Exactly. But the Bible also teaches that God destroys. What does God destroy? I've got three Bible references here. You probably know these. Hebrews 2.14. Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, that by his death he might destroy death and brought light and bring life and immortality to light. And 1 John 4, 8, by his death he might destroy the devil's work. Notice what's going on here. Let's compare and contrast. Satan destroys truth. God destroys lies and brings truth. Satan destroys freedom. God destroys slavery and brings freedom. Satan destroys goodness. God destroys sinfulness and brings righteousness or goodness. Satan destroys health. God destroys sickness and brings health. Satan destroys life. God destroys death and brings life. So, how does one destroy lies? With? And who is the source of truth? Jesus, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. How does one destroy slavery? With? Freedom. And who is our free- where is our freedom found? In Jesus. How does one destroy wickedness? With? Righteousness. And who is our righteousness? Jesus. Uh, how does one destroy sickness? With health. And who is our physician? Jesus. How does one destroy death? With life, and who is the resurrection and the life? You notice the theme here? 
You notice the theme. So in the end, when God destroys all that Satan has brought, how does he do it? Does he do it by exercising might and power to inflict this upon them? Is that what he does? No. That's Satan's method. He destroys simply by being himself, unveiling his life-giving presence of truth and love. Lies can't stand in the face of truth. Lies can't stand in the face of truth. Selfishness is consumed by overwhelming love. This is out of um, Zarvages, page 600. The people who rejected Christ were soon to see their city and their nation destroyed. Follow, see if you can put the pieces together. I'm going to ask you a quiz after you read this. See if you can explain how the, 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 the cause and effect happened here. The glory would be broken and scattered as the dust before the wind. And what was it that destroyed the Jews? It was the rock which, had they built upon, would have been their security. It was the goodness of God despised, the righteousness spurned, the mercy slighted. Men set themselves in opposition to God, and all that would have been their salvation was turned to their destruction. All that God ordained unto life they found to be unto death. In the Jews' crucifixion of Christ was involved the destruction of Jerusalem. The blood shed upon Calvary was the weight that sank them to ruin for the world and the world to come. So it will be in the great final day when the judgment shall fall upon the rejecters of God's grace. Christ, their rock of offense, will then appear to them as an avenging mountain. The glory of his countenance, which to the righteous is life, will be to the wicked a consuming fire. Because of love rejected, grace despised, the sinner will be destroyed. Can you connect the cause and effect? How and why does destruction come to the wicked? Is it important we understand this? Yeah. How did the crucifixion of Christ result in the destruction of those who rejected Jesus? How was it that salvation despised was that which destroyed them? Do you see the connection? Well, let me, let me ask you a couple. Anybody want to comment? Let me ask you the question see if this helps. What happens in the hearts of people who reject Christ? Their hearts are hardened. Okay, good. Those who crucified Christ, what would happen in their hearts? Their hearts would be hard. They would become more selfless or selfish. Selfish. Okay, because God is going to use his power to make them that way. Or when you despise salvation, when you despise grace, when you reject Christ, what happens inside you? You become, you have your heart hardens and you become more selfish. What kind of behaviors do hardened hearted people and selfish people engage in? Would they be peaceful, kind, gentle people? Or would they be violent, rebellious, and unruly? What, what kind of behaviors would they engage in if they're selfish and hardened? And what did the Jews do in relation to the Romans after the crucifixion? What was their behavior? And what led to their destruction? Hard hearts. Their hardened hearts in constant rebellion. That's what did it. And why? And how was that? Because they despised grace. Because they rejected the only healing solution to their hearts. And their hearts hardened. They became selfish. They rebelled. They rebelled until Roman, Rome came and put them down. It's like a rabid dog out of control, trying to kill everything it comes in contact with, was put down. <laughs> Had they accepted Jesus, 
instead of rejecting Jesus, what would have happened to their hearts? They would have been renewed. They would have lived in peace. They would have sought to love others. They would have ministered to the Romans. They would have carried the cloak the extra mile. They would have, they would have been, just as Paul taught the New Testament church, to live in peace with everyone. Don't rebel and don't be unruly. Even the slaves to, to serve your masters in love. Do you see the difference in the heart approach? Interesting, isn't it? Yes, there was a question where? Yes, okay, go ahead. It's kind of intriguing if you look and see how the disciples were like right before the cross and then what changed in the next few years afterwards. And in time to Paul's words, it's for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual weakness in high places. And for quite a while, I mean, they wanted to be zealous. They wanted the Romans off their back, but there was sort of this break and they finally got it. And I, as we try to reach out to other people, both inside our own church families and those outside, it's almost humbling because we have friends that are in that camp still that still feel like, you know, take out the Romans, use the power of force, the same way the disciples saw it before the cross. And it, it could be a way that sort of helps both bring the, the Reformation inside our church, being humbly say, hey, me or a lot of folks very, very close to me believe just the way you used to. You know, come with us to the right, the way that's right, not the way that's wrong. So I, th- I appreciate you bringing this up so much, uh, George. Um, if we think about this, Christ said he came to bring a sword. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, did he come to bring a sword made out of iron or steel? Truth. Truth. I know. See, it's, it's, but the, the imagery, though, can be misunderstood, can it? It can be misunderstood if you operate under a certain paradigm that then we should use the, 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 the might of the weapons and arms of our state to force people into line. It can be misunderstood. But that's not the sword he came to bring. He came to bring the sword you were talking about, which is a sword of truth. Now, it's very imperative. As, as we go forward in a war, where is the war fought? In hearts and minds. Should we wield the sword of truth? Yes. Or should we leave it sheathed and just let everybody just you know let everybody think what they want? And let's not ever confront an idea. Let's not ever bring the sword of truth out to cut through distortions. Let's just keep our, our sword sheathed and be happy in our own little world. Or should we bring the sword out? What did Jesus say about the gates of hell? They will not prevail against the truth. They will be they will be basically knocked down because lies can't stand against the truth. And it's our job to to march forward in the truth. But we don't we march forward in the truth in love, right? not with the power of the state to force, to coerce, to punish, to intimidate, to threaten, only taking on ideas and concepts and misunderstandings effectively, but leaving people free. But it's okay. I will love you just as much if you believe God is going to you know, burn your you know, tormentors in hell forever. I will love you just as much. I have patients actually who believe that marijuana helps them. My compassion for them, my regard for them, my concern for them, my desire to help for them does not change because they believe those things. My attitude does, I don't become against them. I don't seek to punish them. I don't want to hurt them because they believe those lies. But guess what happens to them if they act on those lies? They believe that and they smoke marijuana regularly. Their brain is slowly destroyed. That's what happens. So we can believe people who believe falsehoods or distortions about God, but those beliefs have devastating impacts on the individual, how they function, what they do. I saw a hand somewhere. Way in the back, yes. Truth cuts like a knife. And there's a verse that says, peace like war is waged. Peace like war is waged. I like that. That's good. Yeah, up here. Uh, 
we've been talking about the side of the veil. Right? And I'd like to focus just a little bit, and we may not have time, but I'd at least like to put it on the table. The message of Elijah. I've summarized it in my mind to two words, and that's no rain. He did not support, God didn't support for several years what they were doing, going in the wrong direction, in a very economic sense. I mean, basically destroyed their economy with no rain. So yes, we may have that sword of truth out and wielding it and confronting principalities, but a direct application is, how are we supporting some of those ideas? No rain. Very important to consider in terms of the... So you're suggesting uh, two, on two levels here. One, no rain is... is we talk about the, the, the... Connected with some other things, jogged my mind as you said this, Joel, about the latter rain, that the Holy Spirit is not going to himself empower a false message. So the Holy Spirit isn't going to rain down on people who's lying about God. That's one, one application. There's no rain for people from the Holy Spirit. We, we, we long for the Spirit. There's one man. But I also was maybe almost hearing another suggestion you were making there, that we shouldn't be raining our blessings on organizations that are misrepresenting God. Were you suggesting that? I, I was, yes. Okay, I thought I heard that correctly. Yeah, so I agree with you. And, and, yet, and yet Elijah, at the time of no rain, because the institution was distorting God, he had a brook that he was continuing to be supplied, wasn't he? Yes. Yes, so we will continue to drink at the fountains of truth if we are, our hearts are right and the Holy Spirit will still supply us, won't he? That's true, yeah. This is out of uh, Maranatha, page 275. God's long-suffering, this is about, uh, will it be different at the end? How is it the destruction comes? We talked about uh, the, 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 how the, the um, uh, goodness of God despised, the, the righteousness spurned, and the mercy slighted is what led to their destruction. This is talking about a, a little time in the future. God's long-suffering has ended. The world has rejected his mercy, despised his love, and trampled upon his law. Uh, what law would that be? The law of love. This is it. This, remember, if you put Revelation with this, the Revelation describes that the world is a religious world at the end. They, they, they're coercing people to worship in certain ways. It's not that they're godless, that they're very godly, so to speak, religious in a sense, and they want to make people. So they're, they're wielding the arm of the state for religious purposes. So it's not that they have rejected the idea of God or his law. They have accepted an imperial Roman version of God's law, and they want to enforce it. So it's the truth about God's law of love that's been rejected. They trample upon it by practicing these other methods. The wicked have despised the boundary of their probation. What is the boundary of a person's probation? What is that bound? What, what determines whether you have crossed the boundary of your probation? You become immune to the Holy Spirit. Did you hear what he said? He says when you become callous or insensitive or unresponsive to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth and love. When your heart is so hardened and your mind is so seared that no amount of truth and no amount of love can reach you anymore. Graham, Graham Maxwell I thought made an excellent point when he said the only way that God can reach your mind is through your brain. And the only way his Holy Spirit can talk to you is through your mind. And if you harden yourself because sin repeatedly action deadens your sensitivity to the voice of God. And when you finally harden yourself so that God can no longer reach you through his voice, then you've pushed probation to its limit. You've crossed your path. That's right. So, And I'm going to tell you, I'm not here to judge any particular person, whether they've gone to that point or not. But I have talked to people who at least are stunned 
maybe they're not completely seared, but their sensitivities are stunned. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's like being stung and they're numb. And 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 they and, and if you met people like they can't they can't process right. They don't think right. I'm talking psychotics. I'm talking people who just you present an idea to them and it gets warped as it comes back to you. Yeah. All right. So the boundary of the probation and the Lord withdraws his protection. So what happens when we cross that boundary? The Lord withdraws his protection and leaves them to the mercy of the leader they have chosen. Satan will have power over those who have yielded themselves to his control and he will plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. As the angels of God cease to hold in check the fierce winds of human passion. Did you hear that? Cease to hold in check what? The winds of what? Of human passion, all the elements of strife will be loose. The elements of strife coming from where? The whole world will be involved in ruin more terrible than that which came upon Jerusalem of old. In the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such has not been seen since there was a nation, God's chosen ones will stand unmoved. Satan, with all the host of evil, cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. So what causes the destruction of the wicked? Unremedied sin. Let's be very clear. Their own condition is what causes their end. God's love despised, his methods rejected, his salvation and healing spurned, which results in unrestrained winds of human passion. Have there ever been times in human history where there have been brief moments of that transpiring on earth, where people had unrestrained passions? And what happens in those circumstances in history? Do you see it? How about Nazi Germany for a period of time? The Holocaust. The Holocaust. Yeah. So, why doesn't God, though, just use... I mean, he's powerful. He's all-powerful. He's all-loving. Why didn't he just use his power and call Captain Kirk and transport people to heaven? Because the whole universe is watching. The whole universe is watching. And I've had some suggest in the past, I've heard people that I admire and love and respect say things like, because they wouldn't be safe to be there. I understand the meaning. I think it's actually a little off target. This is out of Steps to Christ, page 17. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there, every heart responding to the heart of infinite love, would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. He would long to be hidden from him who is light and is the center of joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Think of the implications here. Why are they not there? Because God loves them too much to subject them to that much pain. He loves them too much to torture them. Which is what would happen if they were there. So if God were really punitive and wanted to punish them, he would send them to heaven. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is torture them. This would actually torture them. And what law is being described at work in this passage? This is the law of love. This is natural law. It is by their own unfitness 
for heaven. Their own condition determines their destiny. Monday's lesson. We're just getting to Monday now. Monday's lesson. It says, from dust to life. The lesson talks about God creating Adam from dust, breathing him to the breath of life, and Adam becomes a living being. And then at death, Adam returns back to dust. But the lesson also points out that the scripture teaches that there's going to be a resurrection and that people will live again. Question. Will the people who live again, who are resurrected, be the same people with their same identities, individualities, and characters? Ah. Did Adam... Did Adam's character or individuality exist before God breathed into Adam the breath of life? No. No. So when Adam died and his body returned to dust, what returned to God who gave it? Was it the same breath? Did Adam's character, individuality, exist before God breathed into him? No. So when Adam died and his body returned to dust, what returned to God? Was it simply the breath energy? Or had God's breath, with God breathing Adam, that life energy, been modified in some way so that what returned to God was uniquely Adam? Right. Right. Uh, some of you may be uncomfortable with this. Let me just run through some Hebrew with you. The Hebrew word translated breath that God breathed into Adam is the word neshema. And uh, it's the same breath that the animals received. And when a person dies, there is no breath or neshema life in them, 1 Kings 17, 17. But interestingly enough, even though there's no breath of life in the person's dead body once they're dead, the scripture actually uses a different word to describe what returns to God at death. Ecclesiastes tells us that, the, that at death the ruach returns to God who gave it. That's Ecclesiastes twelve seven, And ruach occurs 377 times in the Old Testament, translated as breath of life of the body 33 of those 377 times. So on the surface, one could translate um, uh, breath as, and take the superficial, he breathes in a breath, and breath goes back, that's it. But if you look a little deeper, you'll also discover that this ruach breath is translated as spirit, or vitality, 76 times, courage, temper, see to the emotions three times, but more importantly, it's also translated 16 times as moral character, and nine times as the mind. So what this suggests is that the breath God gave Adam became personalized to his individuality and that what returned to God was not just life energy but the individual, uh, individuality of the sentient being Adam. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. And the Greek word for soul is suke, from which we get psyche or psychology, psychiatry, your, your mind, your individuality, your identity. And then Paul does something very interesting in the first chapter, uh, in First Thessalonians chapter four. This is what it says. Now notice the progression. Uh, SDAs have really stumbled at this point and kind of read over that and go, "Oh, I didn't see that." But listen to this, <laughs> brothers. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with the Lord forever. Did you notice that Paul says that when God returns, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that interesting? 
So could it mean that the breath that returned to God at death was more than life energy, that it was the unique identity of the person? Well, if you're uncomfortable still, some of you, I know, will appreciate this out of Six Bible Commentary, page 1093, written by Ellen White. It says, Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection. Though not the same particles of matter or material substance that went into the grave, the wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. Uh, What about that? It's quite right biblically. She says the spirit, the character of man. Ruach is translated in Old Testament, both spirit and character. So how do you put it all together? Consider, this is my best metaphor, a computer. I have have electronic medical records on my laptop computer. And everything, when I'm seeing my patients, I'm typing into my records, I have a wireless internet connection that is instantly backing it up on a server in another room. Now, if you take my laptop computer and you shoot it with a shotgun and take the pieces and throw it in a fire and melt it, we could say you have killed my laptop. It's dead. But if I go buy a brand new piece of hardware, connect it to my server, and download the data, I have just resurrected my laptop. And if I've upgraded, I've got a much better hardware for it to operate on. It's much more efficient. We're going to get hardware upgrades at the resurrection. Amen? Amen? Yes. But your same individual identity, who you are in heart, who you are in character is the same. And so when the Bible talks about the Lamb's Book of Life, what does it say? Now get your mind around it. What's it say is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life? The names And what is in Hebrew the name symbolic of? Character. Character. Our characters are stored in the Lamb's Book of Life, the heavenly server, safe and secure with heaven. Satan can't touch your character. Everything that you're doing in your mind right now, who you're becoming, is instantly being backed up through a wireless connection to God's Lamb's Book of Life, the heavenly server, And if something happens to you and you're killed in a car wreck, somebody shoots you in a terrorist attack, they can destroy your body, but they cannot touch your suke, your psyche, your individuality, your character, safe and secure with Christ in heaven. And when he comes, he makes a new body and he downloads you into this new body. Yes, George. That's what the recording angel is basically doing, right? Recording angel, potentially, just backing up, it's clarifying. You know, I don't know if the recording angel's involved in the, re- in, in the backing up or not. I don't know exactly the methodology used there, but I wouldn't have any problems with that. But isn't that beautiful, guys? Yeah. yeah. And, th- th- and now you notice how all the pieces fit, all the things we love, in the- and we can put that text in there. We have confidence that the Lord brings with him. Yeah, that's great. All right, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've gone to such incredible lengths to teach us the truth about your kingdom that you are a God of love and you created your universe to operate, to live, to, to have its being, to function in harmony with your methods. And that lies were believed and the circle of love and trust was broken and we became infected with fear and selfishness and, and, and this whole world now is confused with misconceptions about you, Lord. Even our own church that we love and, and, and we care so much for has so, so much distortion in it, Lord. We, we pray for your spirit to empower us, to make us effective, to make us gracious, to make us humble, to make us loving in our ability to approach, but also not, not afraid to stand up for the truth, to be able to take a message to people who, who are sincere but sincerely wrong. Because we ser- seriously want to see you coming and we know you won't come until the gospel of the kingdom is taken to the whole world as a witness to all nations. And we long for that day and empower us to do so. We pray in your holy name. Amen.